This time on Poll Hub, the State of the Union is, well, it depends on which party you side with. Instant polls showed Trump fans liked the speech a lot, while Trump haters, well, they didn't really even watch that much. We'll talk with NBC's Mark Murray about all of that and the reason to wear purple on February 8th. We're talking with a Marist poll grad who, out of deep pain, created a day millions mark each year. It is an amazing story, so let's get to it. And hi, everybody. Welcome to Poll Hub. I'm J.D. Dapper, Director of Innovation here at the Marist Poll. And I'm Barbara Carvalho, Director of the Marist Poll with a head cold. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm Lee Marengoff, Director of the Marist College Institute for Public Opinion, perhaps getting a head cold soon. I don't know. I don't don't like to share those things. Same plane rides. And the State of the Union is Poll Hub. Well, maybe not. So this has been a big discussion, obviously, this week um, uh, about the State of the Union. It's obviously a major event. Uh, at least for the media, I'm not, you know, I'm never, I was never as a reporter, never sure that, that all that many people watched and cared about it, but we certainly did. And it does, in almost this case, fi- almost set 50 a marker. Million, so yeah, the, pre- the press is, the press is still a good get for prime time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Except, so what except we, up against Meet the Press, I should point out. Yeah. So oh, what have we seen? Okay, so there were two instant polls. One was done by CNN, and the other was done by CBS um, with YouGov. And in both cases, they showed a favorable response to the president's State of the Union presentation, uh, 59% from the CNN sample, 76% from the CBS one. Uh, I think the big thing in looking at these polls is people should not think, wow, all of a sudden... The president's turned the corner, and now everybody's rapidly climbing on the bandwagon. In both samples, you get what the viewership is. So in one sample, the Republicans, I think the CNN one was plus 17. The other one, uh, the CBS, were Republicans plus 19. So Republicans watch Republican states of the union, Democrats watch Democrat ones, and that's not necessarily reflective of the country at all. Yeah, I mean, the real question is if there's any lasting, you know, value to this for the president. Uh, And that's some question, one of the questions that we think we could ask a a guy who might know some about that. Mark Murray is uh, NBC News senior political editor. You've seen him on TV. And now he's with us here on Pola. Mark, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. So what, uh, what, uh, kind of take the big picture question first. Is there a lasting impact, do you think, to the State of the Union for the president or for Democrats, for that matter? Very rarely. I actually think that for the most part, State of the Union addresses are pretty dry, non-historical affairs. To me, it's really hard to remember memorable lines from history from State of the Union addresses. To me, you have to go back to when uh, George W. Bush was talking about uh, uranium from Niger uh, when it came to the <laughs> Iraq war, uh, which was we were all looking back at it uh, because uh, about the Iraq war, but not necessarily kind of a memorable f- phrase that his team had really crafted. I actually have to almost go back to Bill Clinton's 1996 State of the Union address on the era of big government is over. And remember, that actually occurred right after the, his midterm shellacking, and maybe it was actually 95 or 96, it was one of those two years, mm-hmm. but as he was preparing for his general election run in 1996, and to me, that was a way for him to almost recenter the conversation, to rebrand what he wanted to do, um, 
after a big midterm defeat and when he actually wanted to make a little bit of a, uh, what we call a pivot. Nowadays, people laugh at pivots. Um, but of course, what we got from President Trump was anything but a pivot. Uh, to me, he leaned on almost on everything that he has leaned on previously, a heavy dose of immigration, a heavy dose of poking Democrats in the eye, despite a ca- calling for some coming together and uh, ways to have commonality. But for the most part, it was vintage Trump. And because of that, I don't really think it changes anything. So do you think that, uh, were you expecting him to be more conciliatory? Or do you think this is really the start of 2020? So one, Barbara, I do think that uh, his speech was a whole lot more like a campaign speech rather than a State of the Union on going through the list of legislation and priorities that you want to be able to be to to end up doing. Uh, but for those who were saying that, God, boy, maybe President Trump is going to reach out to the other side and he's looking for compromise, the, the attitude that I had in the build up to the State of the Union address is that what President Trump or candidate Trump, who you've been watching the last three years. And uh, to me, one of the things about President Trump has been his his consistency um, on, in, particularly in tone, in dealing with political enemies. And uh, I had no doubt whatsoever that the thrust of the speech was going to be on immigration and a talk about his border wall. Is, is the emphasis in the White House on immigration, is that in part Look, he's trying to fulfill campaign promises, but he's, in a sense, isn't he keeping the Democrats off their newly elected House agenda? Uh, yeah. By, by keeping them on the defensive and reacting to immigration, they're not getting much airtime for anything else right now. Is that your sense of why he's doing that? Well, I don't think it's the main objective why he's doing it. I think deep down, he believes that when Republicans are talking about immigration, that it's a winner for them. And Lee, you you and I have looked at a lot of the same polls. And in some ways, maybe the enthusiasm helps his party. But overall, uh, it does seem that the majority of the country is against a lot of his immigration policies. But uh, this was true in the buildup to the midterms. I wanted to talk about immigration. And now, and I think you're exactly right, that it has knocked Democrats off what they they would like to be talking about. But overall, I'm not, it's hard to see how this issue is a winner for the president. And interestingly, you know, if this was ever about getting policy enacted, the policy was for the taking. You had had Democrats just a year ago who were willing to give up $25 billion for a border wall uh, in exchange for protection for DACA or the so-called Dreamers. And uh, that deal was offered and that deal was rejected by the White House. And so I always think that they've wanted this as a campaign issue. But I think the fundamental question is really how strong of a campaign issue is it for Republicans, particularly what we saw in November of 2018? What did you think of the women in white? Uh, it really stood out to me. And honestly, it was a surprise. I did not get any heads up, and I'm sure our Capitol Hill reporters did, but I didn't get any heads up that this was going to be a thing or a visual component of the State of the Union address. But when you were looking at uh, just the applause lines and looking at the composition of the members of Congress, it was a very striking image. And if the counter-narrative to Trump for Democrats in 2018 was women power, the counter-narrative to the State of the Union was women in white, women power. It just seemed like uh, if you're a Democrat, that's about the best message, counter-message you're going to get out from the State of the Union because it plays right to what worked for you in 2018. 
And it, of course, it was the biggest applause line from the pre- that started from the president himself, where we just want to say, "I want to take credit for all of these new women who have joined historic numbers." And, Congress. And the, and the and joke of course, is, of course, like the irony is well put. They're all Democrats. Right, the irony and they is that, you. Thank you, Mr. Trump. You're the reason why we're here because we campaigned against you. So, uh, but uh, I, I I agree completely that it was such a striking image, but also it kind of led to maybe the the Democrats' uh, best kind of applause line uh, for them. For the night, you know, we it was a long speech. We did hear uh, the word investigation. I think once, once or twice. We did not hear the word shutdown. However, um, is is that something you think is going to be resolved before the deadline? So I have gone from making bets or predictions in the Trump era because we have no idea. <laughs> I know, idea. I know, but that's what we do around here. I know, uh, <laughs> but I will say that the prospects for a shutdown to me have diminished a lot since the resolution of that last one. And I, I, I draw to you guys to the reason that the 35-day shutdown eventually ended was that the word got out that LaGuardia Airport was going to shut down. And within hours, uh, you end up having the president say and, and everyone kind of having a temporary deal. To me, the people who would be impacted by a government shutdown now have a key to resolve a shutdown, and that is to say that an airport will not be in operation. And and so I, I don't see there being a shutdown or even a long one because I don't know if there's really an appetite for people to really have just full-on work, work stoppages at the nation's airports. Um, so And it's also clear that the president has been signaling, well, maybe if, if I can't get my wall through Congress that I'll do it through a national emergency. So I see the outline for uh, a, a resolution, but the reason that I'm not in the prediction business is that I thought this was exactly the scenario that we were going to have uh, before Christmas, that at the end of the day, the Republicans weren't going to fight, that they were going to end up doing a, a one-year continuing resolution, just fund the government, not fight this. And then all of a sudden, the president started getting poked from the right wing, from the Rush Limbaugh's and the Ann Coulter's, and he decided to dig in his heels, and we ended up having the government shutdown. So I don't know how the president's going to react, but what I do know is how it, the government workers, and particularly at the airports, now have, I think, a a, a game plan and a playbook to use that would really minimize any type of long-term government shutdown. And, and of course, the clock is again ticking. And as you said, they could have had this before Christmas because everybody's had things that they've said could have worked uh, before then. Um, Judge, one before we leave the State Union, I, I was interested, as most were, in the Democratic selection of Stacey Abrams to give the response um, to the uh, state president, State of the Union. Is that also all about 2020 and being able to contrast with the themes of the president that night? Yeah, I think it's about 2020, but not in the ways that 2020 is normally talked about on the presidential front. To me, she is a prime recruit for Democrats to have to run in Georgia's Senate contest against Senator Perdue, which, you know, you looked at the the election results in 2018, and Georgia, at least, is a place that is on the map. And Stacey Abrams came within one point of winning that governor's race in 2018, and the idea would be that she would be give Democrats maybe their best statewide candidate to run against Senator Perdue in 2020. 
and you know earlier it was that question was asked about the government shutdown and president trump didn't mention the shutdown but right out of stacy abrams mouth one of her first words was talking about the government shutdown uh, blaming president trump for that and that really st- stood out at me because i like you guys noticed that he never used the word shutdown or had any kind of any memory of it but it was the democratic responder stacy abrams who made that front and center her in her remarks uh, before we go mark just a quick response beto o'rourke senate president or co-anchor with an Oprah Winfrey show. Or how about, uh, I, 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 or come to work at NBC News. I have no idea, uh, Lee. Do you have room well, there? I mean, you uh, guys have been adding a lot of people. I think we always have room. But uh, <laughs> I, I, what I would say is, I, I count me in the camp that his path to winning a presidential a general election, just that in itself, is an easier task than being able to win a statewide Senate race against John Cornyn in Texas. Here's why. Texas is really difficult for Democrats, and a 2.5% uh, loss, uh, percentage point loss by Beto O'Rourke to me is the equivalent of winning Iowa by six or seven points in a general election, or maybe Florida by one or two points. And I think that, uh, it, it, to me, it would be an easier task for him to win a general election on the presidential front than trying to win again or run again and win in Texas. The trick, though, is if he decides to run for the presidency, it's the, the, the big challenge will be winning a, a presidential primary in a very crowded and competitive field that could break any different kind of ways. Uh, but to me, I if I were him and you wanted an, at least an easier route when it came to a general election, going at the presidential front instead of Texas is the easier approach to me. So that's one that we're going to trust you know something about since you are from the Lone Star State, right? Yeah, yes, I am from the Lone Star State. I have full disclosure. uh, It's been 20 years since I moved away, but I was a young kid and voting the last time that a Democrat won a top of the ticket statewide race, and that was Ann Richards in 1990. So it's been a very long time for Democrats. And even someone like Barack Obama ended up losing Texas by 15 points in in 2012, Mm. and Hillary lost it by nine points. And so I think that's the best way to put in Beto O'Rourke's two-point loss in 2018. Yeah, still yeah. reach, still reach. Yeah. Mark Mark Murray from uh, NBC News, senior political editor there. Thanks so much for joining us and giving us your insight. And uh, believe it, we will have you back throughout this crazy 2019-2020 cycle. That was fun, guys. Thank you so much. And just because it's always fun to have more voices rather than fewer, our executive producer, Mary Griffith, joins us uh, on the other side of the mic today. Hey, Jay. And why are you here? I am here because we have a very special guest joining us today, Brooke De Palmer. She is Marist College alum, class of 2018, also a Marist Poll alum. And Brooke is currently working at Yahoo as a Yahoo Finance Associate Producer. And Brooke also heads up a very special organization that has its ninth annual um, event coming up to uh, Friday, February 8th. So welcome, Brooke. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to hear from you guys. I miss Maris, but I'm doing okay. <laughs> it's great to hear from you as well. So P.S. I Love You Day. Tell us about mm-hmm. it. Yeah, so it actually comes from a very personal story of mine. When I was 14 years old, I lost my dad to suicide. It was something that was truly unexpected in my family. I never thought that it would happen to my family, me. And so I created P.S. I Love You Day based off the last three words my dad said to me 
which were I love you. And he dropped me off that Friday morning in April, and nearly seven months later, we had the first P.S. I love you day. And Brooke, you were only 14 years old at the time, and yet you had this idea at that point to create this this day. Mm-hmm. I know when I was 14, I was not thinking about anything that, that serious by, by no means. So what what pushed you to do this? What kind of support did you have? And what kind of steps did you take to put this into action? You know, Mary, what's silly is that I never thought that I would be able to do that. You know, you're faced with this tragedy at such a young age, and you're in this fight-or-flight situation where you have two options. You can either go into the darkness or you can choose to be resilient about it. And you see so many people who decide not to talk about the suicide in their family. They decide not to tell their children about a suicide in their family. And they decide to keep it hush. And in my very personal opinion, I think that those people, you know, they need to move forward, take it with them, and and that's exactly what I did. I took the tragedy and I created PS Levy Day because of the people that are around me that told me that my voice mattered and that my story mattered and that I had the ability to create change. And so I'll admit, PS Levy Day came to me almost because I was upset. I was in such a place of, of tragic loss and I didn't know where to turn. And so I thought of those last three words as if my dad was telling me, hey, remember this. Remember that I told you that I love you. Remember that I did not mean for this to happen, for you to feel this way. Just remember that I love you. And it just suddenly came to me. I know it sounds crazy, but the idea came to me. And so by telling someone about it, by telling my class club at the time at West Islip High School, they then encouraged me to tell someone else. So what has it become over this time? For people who don't know what it is, tell us what it is. How do you participate? How do you get involved? And then what is what has the journey been uh, since you were 14 years old? This is nine years now. What has it become? So I'll admit, when I first started it, I thought that no one was going to wear purple. That's the premise of the day, asking people to wear purple on the second Friday of every February. I thought I was going to see no one in purple on that second Friday, the first time you're announcing it. And surely enough, I walked into a sea of purple at my high school, and all those people wanted to be a part of this anti-bullying movement. They all wanted to drive change. And so then after that, you know, momentum started to pick up. And the following year, I made a YouTube video that went viral, and I started getting picked up by local news organizations, local news outlets. And from then on, it's honestly just been a crazy, crazy roller coaster, you know, Some years we have many schools, but this year especially something I'm really excited about. Um, Recently, Governor Andrew Cuomo proclaimed February 8th, 2019 as official PSLV Day in the state of New York. That was thanks to two local assemblymen on Long Island, Mike LaPetri and Andrew Rea. And, you know, without their support, I don't know if it would have gotten that far. And we have about 150 schools who are not only wearing purple this Friday, but they've been gearing up for this day for months. They've been doing door deck challenges. They've been hanging up purple flags around their town. And they really have just been getting the message that you need to be proud of who you are and you have the ability to create change no matter what the age is. I'm 22 now, 
and I never thought it would get this big. Well, Brooke, congratulations on this momentous uh, day and, and, and proclamation in, in New York State. And you know that we think of you certainly as an inspiration uh, from working with you for the for four years and knowing you for uh, working with you and mentoring you for four years and knowing you for, for longer. Um, for schools that do want to get involved that aren't involved, where can they go to get some more information? It's a great question, Mary. So it's very easy. All you have to go to is psiloveyouday.net. There's a Get Involved button. You sign your school up, and then we send you a packet filled with different activities to just get going. But one of the greatest part is, you know, you send these activities as a prompt, and then the kids go wild with it, and they create ideas that I never, ever thought were imaginable. And so it's very easy to get involved. And I hope that you guys can wear purple on February 8th, which is tomorrow. Hey, Maybe I forgot to ask you, did you choose to work at Yahoo because their corporate color is purple? Silly question. Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think it is ironic that our color is purple. And I think... Uh, Maybe, maybe I did choose to come here in the end. You know, definitely drawn to the color, as you can tell. <laughs> well, you know that we will certainly be wearing purple tomorrow. We wish you the best of luck. And, Brooke, you are amazing. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you very much for having me, and thank you to the entire Maris community for supporting this day. It means more than you guys know. And that'll do it for this edition of Poll Hub. Poll Hub is a production of Marist Poll here at Marist College in Poughkeepsie, New York. And thank you, Mary, for joining us today. Mary Griffith, our executive producer, who is always with us, but usually behind the scenes. Thanks for uh, doing the interview with Brooke. That was wonderful. Always good to hear from both of you. It's great to hear how well Brooke is doing. And thanks, too, to Kenny Marples, who is here playing on his computer, uh, our editor, <laughs> who is uh, hopefully going to clean this up and, and make us sound like we know what we're talking about. Might take that last sentence out. Right, I don't know. But we'd also like to thank the Roper Center Archives at Cornell University, and they provide us with the ability to look back in time at survey questions and the results over the decades, which we look at when we look at things like State of the Unions. Get us out of this, Mary. And of course, we want to hear from you. So please send us your questions and your comments to pollhub at maris.edu or reach out to us on social media. You can find us at Maris Poll on Twitter and Facebook. And don't forget to hit that button and subscribe. Catch you next week. <laughs>